0: It's summer and school's out and The Great Outdoors are calling. Whether you are a backyard camper, a car camper or a backpacker, today we are officially kicking off the camping season. The Great Outdoors, camping tips for the whole family, today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Hilberg,
1: And I'm Sitarani Palomar.
0: From equipment to food, from glamping to some tried and true tips on how to make this summer of camping the safest, easiest, and most enjoyable outdoor adventure yet. This is your hour if you are a camper already or want to try it for the first time. We will make you a happy camper <laughs> today. But first... As always, we're starting off the show with our week's review, Sita. But did you
1: first, go? the week's review. Yes, you know, there was a really interesting conversation going on on our Facebook page. We had a listener write in with a question, and he pointed that even organic produce, and in this case, the produce that was being discussed was strawberries, are sprayed with methyl bromide, which is a pesticide fumigant. And Helga, you had a great response. And because you have worked in the organic industry for so long, I thought this would be a good opportunity for me to learn, for all of us to learn. What is this issue? Can you clear this up about organic pesticides? and?
0: Yeah, we had a Facebook post with a little cocktail that was um, red, white, and blue. Oh, for 4th of July. That's exactly right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. For 4th of July. It was strawberries, blueberries, and I think... Yogurt. Yogurt. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And somebody was saying that even organic strawberries basically hold your money. It's not worth it because they are sprayed as well. And it is true, methyl bromide is used, it's required in strawberry production, but only at the nursery level. Strawberries hold a lot of pathogens and bacteria, and like most stock that comes from nursery, it has to be treated, the soil has to be fumigated to make sure that those bacteria and pathogens don't travel over the border, don't cross from one state into the next. The problem with strawberries is California is one of the largest strawberry producers in the country, and we don't have an organic nursery in California. So we are getting our organic nursery stock for strawberries from Oregon or other places. So that means anything that comes into the state of California has to be treated first, if it's not grown and produced in California as a stock, as a little seedling. What? Whether that's Oh, a fruit... stock
1: is seedling?
0: Well, it's the little strawberry plant that okay. you would then I buy, see, see. and then you plant it in your garden, or the farmer would plant it in the field, But strawberries are not grown from seed. They are little plants. And you can't see the strawberries yet. It's like these tiny little stock plants that you plant into the ground, and then they they develop the fruit later. And when they are planted in the soil, no synthetic fertilizer or even methyl bromide is allowed in organic strawberry production. So once the, the little stock plant makes it into the soil at an organic farm, In the state of California, it is grown without any synthetic substances, pesticides that we are used to in non-organic agriculture. But it is true. Methyl bromide is used in the stock in production, the exactly so, uh, at the nursery. So
1: these nurseries, they get the seeds, right? So because strawberries are grown, that's from what seeds, they do. Is that's from the right. Seeds. Okay, the so they get job. the seeds and then they they nurture the seeds until they become these small plants. But the nursery itself needs to treat its plants with methyl bromide. The plant
0: and the the leaves and the soil. That's really where the most pathogens are and Again, in order to avoid pathogens coming to California or really between states traveling up and down to have a certain pathogen suppressant system in place. Unfortunately, the requirement is to treat the soil and there's very little alternative to methyl bromide. Some people are trying and it is being phased out in 2017. In a couple of years, it will no longer be allowed. And yeah, you're you're right. The nursery's job is to grow plants from seed to a plantable little stock, to a little plant. To improve the
1: success rate for anybody else who's planting it.
0: Yeah, a couple of reasons. One is you speed up time. When you grow something from seed, it takes much longer than when you buy the little shoot already. And you can see which plants are the strongest. So you weed out the ones that are weak. There's a certain germination rate around seeds. It's not that every seed actually turns into a plant. So if a farmer plants from seed, he will lose 20% Mm. just by the seeds not germinating, maybe more, 30% if the seeds are not great. So that's in order to avoid that, most farmers plant a little plant already.
1: Well, thank you for making what is otherwise an extremely (laughs) complicated. It's so complex. Even (laughs) even as we get savvier in this food industry to better understand how our food is grown, there are a lot of little details. You know, if you're not a farmer, it seems like it's all magic happening behind the scenes. It's incredible, really, (laughs) The,
0: the food system and food production and the laws around it and what is required when and what is allowed when. It's so complex and it's so multi layered, and it's important for us to know what we want and to fight for it, but to really also understand and not take that and and leave it, you know, a law that we don't want, but really understand the complexity that everyone deals with. So I would say still absolutely buy your organic strawberries, support the organic grower it's a very pesticide-heavy crop. So if you buy it non-organically, you get the fumigation with methyl bromide, and you get all the pesticides that are used when the berry actually grows. You don't get that inorganic. So you still get a, a cleaner product at the end. And it's strawberry season. It's a good topic to talk about that and decipher the world of sustainable agriculture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, Zeta. Yeah.
1: So today we're talking about camping and all of the great tips to make it a wonderful success for you and your family. We've got our favorite tips as lifelong campers and Helga's been a backpacker and our associate producer is a backpacker. So she weighed in with all of her tips. And then we had so many comments from listeners. So we'll get to all of that when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us.
2: Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit EarlsOrganic.com.
1: Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery. Family owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F R E Y W I N E.com.
0: And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. And
1: I'm Sitarani Palomar.
0: We asked you, our listeners, a few weeks back, both on air as well as on Facebook, to give us your best tried and true camping tips. And the response was amazing. I think we got over 100 comments on Facebook and people wrote in. So we are officially, if you haven't done already so, kicking off the camping season. Whether you are a backyard camper or even camp inside your house, you're a car camper or you are a backpacker today today we're giving you the best tips to make this year, this summer of camping, the funnest, safest, easiest, and most enjoyable. But first, as always, here's our very own chef Sita, Sitarani Palomar and her holistic bite.
1: Well, today we have a very special treat. Calling in for this week's holistic bite, we have on the line Dr. Ed Bowman from Bowman College. Ed, are you with us?
3: Hi, Sita. Hi, Helga. Hi, everyone else. Hello. Hello. I'm all present.
1: (laughs) It's been a bit of time since we had you call in with some health tips. And the last time you called in, we learned so much. Our listeners learned so much. And we thought it would be a great time to revisit some of your nutrition and health expertise, particularly this time of year summer summer <laughs> summer and sunshine and all of the things that go along with being outdoors yeah. and we want to start with something that is related to the sun can you tell us about the importance of vitamin d
3: vitamin d is delightful <laughs> so it's it's so unusual because we get it from the sun and very few of us are getting enough vitamin d because we're not spending much time outdoors anymore and when most people are outdoors, they're lathered up with sunscreen. So really, it's a, it's a big deficiency vitamin. It's fat-soluble. And it's a hormone. It's a pro-hormone. That's interesting. That affects metabolism in all parts of the body. It improves the metabolism in the brain and the reproductive system and the lungs and the cardiovascular immune muscles. And many people know it's part of calcium uptake. d gives us energy. The sun is, our, is an energy source and we're not using it. We're, we're not getting enough solar energy.
0: You were making a good point that most of us don't spend enough time outdoors. And mm-hmm. even if we do in the more, more northern hemispheres, yes. you have to be outside at the right time of the day mm-hmm. during the right months to even absorb enough sunlight for the skin to produce vitamin D. What is the biggest source for vitamin D? I know there's the mm-hmm. sun, but there are some food sources yeah. as well, right? You know,
3: Unfortunately, if you're north of LA and and you drew a line across the country to Charleston, South Carolina, the sun's not strong enough to get us much D. It's good to be outdoors for a variety of reasons, but we do get D from foods. We get them from oily fish. So I think eating clean, oily fish five to seven times a week will get us quite a bit of D. And it's also in egg yolks and organic pasture-fed dairy products. So we do pick it up from the food. And then if people are outdoors, they want to be outdoors in the middle of the day and and get some sun for 30 to 60 minutes with as much body exposure as they can. For a supplement, people can take cod liver oil, which actually doesn't taste too bad. There's different varieties. Nordic Naturals makes one with lemon or mint. And a tablespoon of cod liver oil is about 1,200 IUs of D a day, which is a very nice dose. And if people have illness issues, uh, and many of us do, depression, obesity, problems with the muscles, the bones, two or three tablespoons of cod liver oil a day is very well tolerated and very restorative.
0: So Ed, if somebody is a a vegetarian or a vegan, um, Mm -hmm. are there any plant-based sources of vitamin D? My
3: speculation is algae, because things that eat algae and chlorophyll tend to be healthier and tend to make essential fatty acids like omega-3 and tend to have better levels of vitamin D. And your, your healthy vegan person may also spend more time outdoors with less clothing on.
1: Let's flip the question now and go to the other side of things, because if people are getting overexposure to the sun and mm-hmm. we're, we're concerned about sun damage and skin damage, I know that beta-carotene is a really powerful antioxidant. Can you tell us about how beta-carotene can help
3: mitigate yeah. sun damage? Well, there's beta and alpha and gamma and delta. There's carotenes in all colorful uh, fruits and vegetables. And carotenes, like vitamin D, are fat-soluble. So the more yellow, orange, red, green, purple, blue foods people eat, the more antioxidant protection they have, the more free radical damage protection they have. And these carotenes moisturize the cells in the skin and help them get younger and fresher. So having a vegetable juice or vegetable, fruit and vegetable salads are really awesome, and doing that on a daily basis. And using the pulp from a juice might be carrot, apple, celery, grapes, and putting that on one's skin is a good rub and moisturizer, along with some oil base, be it avocado or olive oil.
1: That sounds so <laughs> smart.
3: I mean, us so juice if, and, and make facials at the same time and get some sun on the rest of our body. I sure. love that.
1: that I love that. This is actually a really great time, just like you said, to start doing a morning carrot juice. Or you combine yep. it with these other, the apple and the grape and the various mm-hmm. other things that you put in, just to be mindful about getting the right nutrients to protect yourself from sun damage right now and then be resourceful with, <laughs>
0: with the pulp. But get mindful exposure to the sun and then, you know... Yeah, burning it is terrible. It. Yeah, so we
3: definitely don't want people to overexpose and to burn. That would be very harmful. Well, Great. you've given I'm not us such, <laughs> <much for>
1: that. <laughs> you've given us such good insight into how to just be more healthy, lifestyle round year round, and we love having you on. Thank you so well, much I'll for making you the time. Soon. We'll have we have look you back forward soon. to yes. it. Yes, <laughs> Thanks, Ed.
0: thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye
1: everyone. Right. Bye. Ed. Ed. bye. bye. Ed Bowman, of course, Dr. Ed Bowman, the founder of Bowman College, holistic nutrition and culinary arts school with campuses across the United States and also the opportunity to study from wherever you are. If you want to do the distance learning program, this is just a snapshot of the kinds of things that you can learn from Bowman College, whether it's a public class or professional class or their blog. There's so much to learn about health and nutrition and lifestyle. So really appreciate him coming in with this very timely bit of information.
0: Thank you, Sita. That was Sita Rani Palomar, Chef Sita and her Holistic Bite. The Great Outdoors, camping tips for the whole family today on An Organic Conversation.
1: Well, then it was a perfect holistic bite to talk about being outside and being (laughs) in the sunshine. And camping, you know, camping isn't always done in the sunshine. Sometimes it's done in the rain and the fog and very frequently under the shade of big trees, at least here on the West Coast. And also when I grew up in Michigan. And that is exactly what we're talking about today. All of the best tips that we learned from years of camping as children and adults. And then the wonderful tips that we heard from our listeners.
0: And it's amazing actually bringing up our own camping experience experience which really prompted this show we were saying you know it's summer we we will go camping and there's a certain thing you do you have your camping experience down if you are an avid camper and yet I was so surprised and amazed by all the things I didn't know Mm. we got so many comments way over 100 comments from our listeners suggesting things I did not know about I'd never heard about and such beautiful simple ideas so I'm excited. And we decided to kind of split it between car camping and backpacking.
1: Yes, two different. It's like two different vacations, practically. The only thing that they have in common is that they're outdoors and they both are considered camping. But it's a completely different prep and a completely different setup and a whole different set of considerations.
0: And to start off right away with a tip that I just realized, if you do car camping and you leave your hood open, make sure that the trunk light is off. Because it will drain the battery if you leave the trunk open for a day or two, pretty much the entire time. But why don't we dive in car camping and backpacking one more the more luxurious a little bit if in doubt throw it in the trunk and you use it version lots of amazing things that people suggested and the lighter kind of backpack even if it's just a hike in for half a mile or 200 yards to get away from cars from the usual spot where where people do car camp if you want just a little bit more nature wherever you fall in on that spectrum why don't we kick it off with some car camping tips well car
1: camping is <laughs> kind of my specialty. <laughs> I mean, we car camped a lot when I was young. We I grew up in Michigan. And of course, the lakes have lots of opportunity for camping. And we would go to Lake Michigan to this place called Muskegon that had wonderful campsites right at the top of these sand dunes. And then you would take the long hike down the sand dunes onto the beach and just spend all day in the sunshine swimming in the cool, clear waters of Lake Michigan. But you know we did car camp. We did drive with lots and lots of equipment. In fact, we were one of those families we had like a kitchen tent you know it's like its own tent with mosquito flaps and you know you set up a whole basically functioning kitchen in the middle of your outdoor place and I think the largest we ever had because I've got a pretty big family is I think we took like six or seven tents because there were, you know, two siblings in each tent or something like that. So we're that.
0: adding town camping.
1: It was basically <laughs> it was basically our little village, our camping village. But you know, one of the things I remember so well about it, and this is something I've mentioned on the show, is that my my mom had a tradition where the night before we left for camping, she would roast baked potatoes in the oven, and then she would pull them out, she would cut them open, and then stuff them with cheese and broccoli, and wrap them in foil, and then put them into the cooler. So our very first night while we were on our campsite after we got the fire going. She would put these foil-wrapped baked potatoes there in the fire pit area and the heat would finish cooking the potatoes. It would cook the broccoli. It would melt the cheese. That's what we would have for dinner. And it was so incredibly delicious. And that's always what I associate with the first night of camping. And when you are car camping, there are a lot more things that you can bring by way of food. And so one thing that I do when I car camp is I like to pre-cut all of my vegetables so that way I don't need to take a cutting board and knife. I have done that before and I tell you it was a lot Of work, I thought I was saving myself time by not pre-cutting my veggies, but it would have been better if I had. And if you do that, you're also getting rid of the pieces that you would otherwise compost, like the seed centers or the tops of your carrots. And so it takes away some of the bulk that you're taking, but it also minimizes the likelihood of attracting animals with those leftovers.
0: Yes, and that's really one of the three areas. If you want to talk about the issues or the opportunities about camping, it's food, water, and shelter as the three main things that you need food, water and shelter, but waste when it comes to food and overall living in the wild. You don't want to spend all day cutting your veggies, dealing with the waste because it attracts animals overnight. And so if you can reduce waste, have a really light impact on your campsite, spend the most time really camping and being in the outdoors and going hiking and be practical around your food. It saves time to really be in nature. It saves waste that you don't need to deal with.
1: I also found a lot of creative ways to keep the food That I brought with me simple. If I stopped at the grocery store on my way camping, I would pick up boxes of salad, boxes of cherry tomatoes, some fresh basil. And I always had a condiment bag that I kept in my camping boxes. And it had olive oil, vinegar, salt, pepper and my favorite spices. So, what I could do is then just open these box salads, rinse my cherry tomatoes, tear some all or some basil in it and then top it with olive oil, salt, and pepper and and all of those things. It was a really easy way to put together food. It didn't take much time, it didn't take much space because it's all it's all self-contained. And another thing that's a great food option when you're car camping is to bring a lot of dips because they're very easy. I mean, you're eating them out of their bowl and if you have pre-cut vegetables already, you can dip them into things like bean dip and salsa or a yogurt dip or you can make guacamole really easily and you can also bring crackers and chips and you know tortilla chips and even fresh tortillas lots of things that you can do and it's just very simple it doesn't require any dishes so that's a, another great food tip for when you're car camping.
0: Yes and talking about food there's a brilliant suggestion by Catherine thank you so much Catherine for that she says for a multi-day camping trip prepare and freeze soups and stews in just the right containers for the number of mouths that you need to feed pack in the ice chest so it's a cooling element in itself according to your day plan and serve them furthest out at the bottom so prep the ice chest right and that helps keep all the other food cooler and because you need less ice right you use the soups and stews as the cooling element itself And um, that leaves you more room in your ice chest. I thought that was brilliant. That's really
1: smart. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who always makes lentil soup when she and her husband go car camping. And so this idea of actually making it and freezing it and then using the frozen soup essentially as an ice replacement, um, it's just very smart. And then we had Sherry write in who reminded you that when you are out camping, tie up or place up in high areas all of your edible food because it reduces the, quote unquote, involuntary sharing with animals, which I think is very clever. I have had raccoons come around in the middle of the night and get curious about what we had around to eat. But in some places, this is an imperative, especially if you're camping somewhere where there are bears. You have to tie your food up or put it in a bear locker.
0: Which might be a law even, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have food out. But from birds to little chipmunks, nothing is more annoying in the morning to pick up 45 minutes <laughs> after a raccoon <laughs> came through the trash bin We've all been and there, ripped though. it open and you spend an hour basically cleaning up your campsite it's so annoying also uh, the fresh food that you don't want to share with animals so absolutely make sure it's extra stored and even if you don't see any animal around you you are in nature and they are there and it might just be a feisty bird a blue jay they are amazing they're so creative they're looking at how you are closing the jar and then they're trying to pry it open again It's much easier to enjoy them,
1: (laughs) to enjoy the company of the animals when they're not obnoxiously trying to get to your food. (laughs) So when it comes to water, car camping does have the added advantage of being able to bring large water jugs but you can also bring portable water filters and you know we'll talk a little bit more about the really compact ones that you can take when you're backpacking in space is limited but there is a great water filtration system or these self-contained systems by a company called Berkey and they've got small ones that you can take that you fill them up with water and they do just ultra purification and so you don't need to bring as much bottled water with you because you can find a source and just have have it purified in your water filtration system that you set up in your campsite. Before we get to fire, let's talk about packing because when you car camp, it's really important to remember that what you are going to need last when you get to your site is what you load into the car first and vice versa. So if your tent is the first thing you're going to need.
0: It's so classic, right? You put in the tent first because you know you're going to need it, but it's the first thing when you arrive at seven o'clock and you have 45 minutes of daylight left. That's the first thing you need. So you need to unpack your entire trunk in order to get to your tent. Yes, be smart about how you pack your trunk.
1: And when you do finally set up, if you are in a windy place and you're doing day hiking, take your tent down while you're out because winds can come through really quickly and these tents are like balloons. They just get picked up. I actually had this happen to me in Utah during a windstorm and sandstorm. So actually take your tent down, lay a tarp over it and put rocks on top and that'll weight it down and it won't be able to get picked up and travel down the side of the mountain while you're gone and you return to no shelter. Yeah, even the best,
0: <laughs> tens. I've seen tents fly along the beach at oceans. Like it's just, you know, wind can pick up to 20, 30 miles. On the beach in the mountains easily even though there was no wind at 10 o'clock in the morning by two o'clock it kicks in or there's a quick storm brewing and there's nothing you can put in the tent that would be enough weight for a tent not to be blown away
1: and just in case something does happen and you do get a rip in your tent make sure you bring a tent patching kit with you it'll take care of those little tears or breaks or any kind of structural weakening
0: or a tarp I really thought tarps are kind of overrated but now if you have a couple tarps just you know six by six or six by four It's amazing what you can do as a ground cover if you get wet and you need to lay out your clothes on something clean and the car certainly isn't anymore. Everything is dusty when you go camping, at least in the mountains. And as an extra rain shelter, if you get hail, if there's a hole in your tent and you forgot the patching kit, it's just a tarp is so universal. You can wrap yourself in it. If you get really cold, if something happens, it's an amazing little emergency blanket in that sense. They don't take any space. They are really lightweight.
1: Well, you have another really good tip that I was fascinated about, about where you set up your tent and what you want your morning experience to be like.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, just usually you come to a site and you look at what is flat, where are animals, where are the ants, you know, how can I not be hit by a gigantic pine cone, whatever whatever it may be for you to assess the best camp spot, a little bit of a view. Most of the time or often people forget to calculate the sun. You either wanna be warm intentionally in the morning at eight o'clock or you don't wanna bake in your tent. And I'm sure the people who are listening who have quite a bit of camping experience You can wake up at 8.30 in the mountains in a tent that is 84 degrees. It's just the sun will bake your plastic tent. You might have stayed up a little longer at the campfire and and you wake up dehydrated already because you're, you're in a higher altitude maybe. You didn't drink enough. You were driving the day before. So check out the sun. Watch where it sets. It's the opposite direction, exactly, east from where it sets. That's where it will rise. And you can calculate, intentionally work with the sun. Do you want sun in the morning or do you want shade in the morning? Bring a compass. Bring a compass. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can really literally draw a line of the last sun ray that you get. That is west. So exactly the opposite is where it will rise. Well, we've got
1: lots more great tips for you (laughs) tips from our own experience, tip from our listener experience. So stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more.
0: You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helber. And
1: I'm Sita Ronnie Balamar. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earls Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earls Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earls Organic Produce at EarlsOrganic.com. That's EarlsOrganic.com.
0: And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and I'm Citrani Polymer. We're talking about the great outdoors in this episode. Our listener created, per your suggestions and tips and advice. The best summer camping experience, the great outdoors, camping tips for the whole family, our topic in this hour. And let's look. Let's look at
1: more of these great listener write ins. We had a whole section on fire because your campfire is a big part of your camping experience. So Jessica wrote in with this great tip that I have personally seen work wonders, and that is save your dryer lint at home that you collect while you're doing laundry and bring that as a fire starter.
0: It was the most amazing tip. They were all phenomenal, but this one blew me away because dryer lint is a waste product. It's light. It's really just dust. It's cotton dust, right? And it doesn't cost anything, of course, and you get to clean out your dryer to begin with and you're avoiding all these chemicals, liquid-based or you know, soaked in fire starters. Like It's, it's zero money. And it works like a charm. So dryer lint as a fire starter, no way to it. So even for backpacking, if you just have a little Ziploc bag filled to the brim with dryer lint, it will kick your fire off.
1: It does. And I actually, (laughs) I would keep a a little Ziploc bag in my laundry basket. And so when I did laundry and I needed to clean out the, the... lint trap, I would just put it right into the bag and when it was time to camp, it was on my checklist. Just go to the laundry basket and pull out your bag of dryer lint.
0: We should make a product and sell it. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> and Camilla. Great suggestion, Camilla. Thank you. She says, cedar bark smells amazing when it burns. And There's nothing better than a nicely smelling campfire, but it's also a great bug repellent. But we'll talk about bugs in just a minute. We have a whole
1: section dedicated to bugs. But let's finish up fire because Anna wrote in with something that is really crucial. She reminds us that most of all, you need to keep a close eye on your campfire and make sure it's completely out before you go to sleep for the night or when you leave camp. And Helga, you have an analogy for this.
0: Yeah, it's called kind of, uh, I don't know if I heard that or made that up, but it's like an iceberg. What you see is actually not where the heat is. The heat of a real campfire that was going for three, four hours or longer, maybe you know, half through the night, can be two or three feet deep. It has happened that roots, tree roots that were kind of under the fire pit, usually it's cleared, but if you build your own fire pit, you put some rocks in a ring and you feel it's safe and there's no wind, so no sparks can fly, the sand underneath your fire actually is hot enough and the fire travels down, the heat travels down to ignite or smolder any roots or any wood that might be in that two, three feet depth. So even though you might feel like your fire is out now and it's safe, I can't emphasize, and fire service will tell you that, really use that extra bucket of water if you have it, if you camp near a water source, or make extra sure that you kill your fire and you are still there for three, four hours to see if anything starts smoldering again.
1: And Alice wrote in with a really resourceful tip about the ashes. So you're going to (laughs) have campfire ashes and she says that they are wonderful for scouring your stainless pots and pans. It makes them shine. And Helga, you said you've done this with sand before, as long as it's something that can't be scratched like cast iron. And if you're car camping, you may bring cast iron with you to do your cooking. Certainly not if you're backpacking because it's so heavy. I just think it's so resourceful. It is a
0: better source of metal anyway. I mean, stainless steel works. Cast iron is great because you can just totally burn that pan in the fire and it doesn't really matter and the more burned it gets the more seasoning there is and you get that iron from the iron pan some people do bring teflon or aluminum in either case you don't want to use sand to clean it because if you scrape it you might get pieces of aluminum mm-hmm. into your diet that's a heavy metal that's toxic and definitely you don't want to scratch the teflon surface but any other steel or cast iron I just love cast iron and yeah too heavy for backpacking but it must have at the fire if you carcass
1: And a must have at the fire is bug protection because you have a lot of critters who are coming, mosquitoes or biting flies. And we put up a great tip on our site that kind of kicked off all of the suggestions from everybody else. And that was when you get your fire going, you can burn sage or citronella or cedar bark in your campfire because it does help to prevent the mosquitoes from coming. And we got tons of other great tips. Like somebody said, carrying a dryer sheet in your pocket will keep mosquitoes from coming at you. And then Jane wrote in and said, this is a really fantastic tip, not just for mosquitoes but ticks and fleas cannot tolerate the smell of coconut oil. So you can put it on your skin, you can put it lightly on the outside of your hair, and they hate the smell, and it makes it harder for them to land on your skin and stay on you. And she says this works for animals too. She uses it with her dog regularly.
0: And then Violet said tea tree oil, of course, to keep bugs away. It's totally safe. It's natural. You can dab on the areas That emit heat So it kind of Evaporates out Neck Forehead All the exposed areas Your legs And watch the bugs run I love that Thank you Violet but don't use it in full strength. Susan wrote that, I think, and she promised Vanessa, one of our listeners, <laughs> we won't forget to mention that.
1: great dialogue yes. about the importance of Cut diluting the, your essential exactly, oils. Exactly, dilute
0: yes. the tea tree oil. Don't use it full strength. It's way too strong. And it can spe- actually create a reaction.
1: And speaking of essential oils, Risha said that organic peppermint oil rubbed on your skin works really well. And you can check the Organic Conversation Facebook page for a DIY bug spray, and all natural bug repellents from Credo Beauty. But there is a great way to create your own bug spray or air mist that has these various essential oils that really are proven to keep the bugs from landing on you. Yes.
0: And then lastly, Dana wrote, carry a bottle of cinnamon in your backpack. I thought that was genius, too. If you sprinkle a fair amount where you're putting your bed before and roll it out and uh, or you have a little bit of cinnamon in a little pouch, fire ants run from it. So if you are camping in an area where there are ants or specifically fire ants, it's not harming the environment. It's just cinnamon, but they really don't like it. It's I love This that. is smart. I've used <laughs>
1: cinnamon in my house to keep ants away, but I never thought about taking it backpacking. It's really great. brilliant.
0: You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. And
1: I'm Sita Ronnie Palomar. And
0: we're talking about the great outdoors and us being in it. Camping tips for the whole family this hour dedicated to the safest and funnest and most enjoyable outdoor adventure yet in this hour with our listeners sending us advice and their best tried and true tips mixed in with our own experiences of being camping, whether that's car camping, backyard camping, or backpacking.
1: So let's give one of one of my favorite tips that you brought to this conversation which actually is the perfect segue from car camping to backpacking and it's about choosing your location and this applies regardless of whether you're car camping or backpacking
0: it's something i learned through fishing i grew up as a little boy fishing a lot and i realized on the side of the lake where the wind hits the shore so the wind coming over the lake you have more fish. And I realized that's where all the nutrients are being blown into. But I also realized there are no mosquitoes. So if you are camping near water, camp on the side where the wind comes over the water. It's cooling, it keeps the mosquitoes away. And again, if you do fish or if your kids fish, that's where you catch one. (laughs) I love
1: that tip. I love that tip. Okay, so we're going to transition now into backpacking. So all of you backpackers, tune in and thank you to the people who rode in. And let's start with the same things we started with car camping, and that is first and foremost food. And because weight is an issue, you're carrying everything on your body, you want to stick with foods that are really light. Things like dry mixes for breakfast, like oats or granola, rice, is a really good sweet or savory dish that you can use with water that you collect and purify and then heat over your fire. Helga, can you talk more about this? Because I know you are much more seasoned backpacker than I
0: am. I love backpacking. I love to get away from the cars for a few days. And again, whether that's just a few hundred yards in a hike in campsite or really just five hours into the woods and pitch your tent wherever you feel like it the biggest issue really is water because the food can be arranged around water the conversation is is there any kind of reliable water source I uh, got into real trouble once where there was a creek on the map and I asked a ranger if the creek has water and he said he hasn't been there in a couple weeks but this time of year it always does and it didn't And I relied on it, and I got really heavily dehydrated, the most dehydrated I've ever gotten in my life, and it's not pretty. All of a sudden, you start cramping all over, and you can't carry your 20-pound pack anymore, and I was five hours away, so I had to somehow make it back. It ruined the trip completely. It was dangerous. So dehydration, water source, is critical. If you know you have water... Uh, of course, water filters again purification systems. They're not that expensive anymore. There's ten dollars straws that you literally stick into the creek, and it purifies while you pump it through the sucking motion of your of your mouth of your body. Or light little backpacking kits for forty fifty dollars that last for years. That are really purifying level. It's not just filters; they're purifying. So you can, even with somewhat questionable water sources, I wouldn't use standing water, but anything but standing water in the wild, you should be fine with those kits. When you have water, it's really fun because even dried mixes, anything dried, freeze-dried, light, oats, yes, we love milk and honey, but you can do oats with a little bit of stevia and just water, and it's yummy. Any food in the wild tastes better already anyway. <laughs> so if you can, you know, not do the milk or bring milk powder, the moment you have water, the world of food, even when you backpack and want to do extra light, opens up.
1: And, you know, we had somebody write in, Danny... And Dina rode in, they camped together, backpacked together, and they said that there are a lot of herbs that are grown outside that you can forage in the wild. And we're actually doing an entire episode on foraging next week. We have Cami McBride back from the Herbal Kitchen. We've done great episodes with her in the past, and she's going to help us identify what foods are safe to forage and eat when you're out in the wild. So this is one way for you to limit the amount of things you're bringing is to know how to safely eat food that's out there
0: let's move on to shelter and equipment.
1: Well, one thing that you said is make sure you check the weather. You can get a pretty good forecast in advance, and you're usually backpacking for about two or three nights at a time. So you can consider going without a tent if you know that you're not going to be caught in any kind of a rainstorm. And that is the greatest weight next to food. So it is really handy if you can sleep just exposed to the elements in a safe way. It's a total trip. I mean,
0: (laughs) (laughs) for some people, it's the most normal thing to not bring a shelter. But I camped for the very first time. I love tents. I love uh, that, that feeling of being protected and critters. And, you know, for a gazillion reasons, sleep is important to me. But I did camp last year for four days without any shelter. I just had a tarp with me. And it took me two, three, four nights, really, three nights to get into it and to accept that and not be nervous about it. But the last night was maybe the most enjoyable night i've ever spent in the outdoors without any tent above me i just watched the stars all night turning and there was just some connection of being that exposed and vulnerable Uh, and again you can bring a tarp for the ground cover to keep some of the critters away but there was no critter and it was amazing the experience to really just sleep in your sleeping bag Uh, if you have never done that just try it once and just see what it's like
1: and if you have never backpacked before, if you're going to take this opportunity and go out and do it for the very first time, make sure that you fit your backpack well before you leave the house. It may seem kind of ridiculous to do a dry run, but you want to know how much you're carrying. You want to know that it's sitting correctly on your body because you're going to be carrying it with you everywhere and you don't want to create any kind of injury by not having it well fitted or not having it be a weight that you can carry with you.
0: I love that. I love It might be dorky to do dry run. It's actually completely crazy not to. Mm -hmm. Whether it's boots or whether you run your first marathon and you buy brand new tennis shoes the day before or you go backpacking, this is equipment. This needs to work for you and you don't know if it works for you just because it felt pretty okay the moment you put it on in the store and then took it out and then put 20 pounds in it. Do that. You know, have your backpack on with 20 pounds in it for three hours in the house doing or in the garden whatever just walk with that and see what that's like and it's just like a new bicycle you you gotta work up to it and with boots same thing if you if you hike for three four hours you don't want to do that for the first time in the new boots when you go out there the blisters will kill you Hmm. or can might so yes fit it try it use it and then you feel like you're really ready
1: So a couple of great backpacking tips Jillian wrote in and said, as an alternative to a pillow, you can bring a mesh laundry bag and that's where you put your clothes and put in dryer sheets so that that kind of gets rid of any potential odor that might be there with your laundry bag. But it becomes a really great alternative to having to carry an additional pillow because you can actually sleep on this really soft laundry bag.
0: Yes, and then our associate producer put up her best tip, which she doesn't like to be cold in the morning. So she puts her clothes for the next day at the bottom of her sleeping bag to keep them warm all through the night. So when you get out in the morning, you can just, you know, grab your sweater from the bottom of your sleeping bag and put it on. And it's nice and cozy. Clothes can get I might, really I might cool. even consider
1: doing that at home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I know you would. Um, Then also Sean said, I know we're almost out of time, but there are a couple more. I I love this one. Thank you, Sean. He says, don't take idiots. And we were both (laughs) laughing, reading that and thought, you know, that's kind of silly, but it's actually critical. If you've never camped with that other person, just talk about it. Just talk about how they camp, what they like, how they, you know, experience nature. And don't find out, especially when you go backpacking, on the trip itself it can really change your experience you want to know who you're going with and you know have some kind of reverence for nature and enjoy it and be comfortable with quiet time and (laughs) thank you sean well
1: that I think is all of the tips that we have time for. But continue to share your tips on our Facebook page, right in on our site. We're going to put all of these up and give you guys an opportunity to continue to reference all the great ways to enjoy the outdoors this summer.
0: Great, yes. Thank you, Sita. That was so fun. And thank you to all the people who contributed in this hour of the great outdoors camping tips for the whole family today on An Organic Conversation. And now go out and pack, go camping. <laughs> I'm Helge Helber. And
1: I'm Sitarani Palomar.
0: And speaking about food, we are diving into the world of fruits and vegetables. Here's what's in season. And on the phone with us, already talking... (laughs) Uh, is the voice of the San Francisco Produce Market, Mr. Organic, Mr. Earl Herrick from Earl's Organic Produce, as always, with the update from the doc. Earl, what is in season this week? Welcome to the show.
2: Yes, hello, Helga. Hello, Sita.
1: Hello, Earl.
2: Well, the bounty continues, (laughs) beautiful, beautiful time of year. Yes. uh, You know, I love these conversations and the... Prelude to them. There's so many choices this time of year, and and we're going to focus on one that I think gets overlooked. It's a basic necessity, and that's onions. And why would we talk about onions here? Well, there are seasons to onions, and the season we're in right now is a fairly short time of year where you can only get fresh, sweet onions. Now, is there a sweet onion? Is there different types? Well, the, you know, you have the three basic colors: the white, yellow, and the red. And yellow are eighty-seven percent of what is grown and harvested. And this time of year, very particular varieties are grown to yield a young, very sweet. We're talking. Some people eat these raw as an apple, and the characteristics are are really unique. They they, they have nothing to do. Well, not completely nothing, but they're not like the. The onion you get in the winter and the fall and the spring where you have to breathe through your nose to make sure, or your mouth is it. I can't even remember. Make make sure that you don't cry. Which one is that? Sita yes. <laughs> Through your Breathing
1: mouth. Breathe through your
2: nose or your mouth. I can't remember now.
1: Through your mouth, I think. I don't know. Yeah. There's so many tips to keep from crying. But so so keep talking. Keep talking. This yes. is fascinating. You wanna
2: disconnect yourself emotionally from cutting a a, a winter onion. It's a completely unique unique situation now where this time of year. And what's really crazy about it, too, is all over the country, it is grown regionally. And when I say it, it's the particular sweet onion. And they all take great pride in the different areas where they're grown, and they give them names. And for me as a produce guy, I remember early on the Vidalia onion out of Georgia was this mythical Thing. Like, well, how can you raise onion to a point of being mythical? That was really the stepping-off point. Other ones you may be familiar with is the Walla Walla out of, out of Washington, or the Maui Sweet out of, of course, uh, Hawaiian Islands. California has its own, and though it doesn't have a particular name, they're just known as, for example, we have one where we call um, Santa Barbara Sweet because it's grown out in Santa Barbara.
1: So these sweet onions, are they cured also?
2: That is one of the characteristics. Yeah, I kind of blew past all that, didn't I? The, no, they're not very cured at all. And so visually, they're, they're light-skinned with virtually no skin, and that makes them vulnerable to bruising. And they're also very high in water, which means that they don't store very well. So this time of year, this is an onion you don't want to, buy and, and throw it in a, in a root cellar for uh, a month or so, it, it, it's going to mold on you because it is so high in uh, water.
1: And it's also high in sugar, right? I mean, these are particularly oh. sweet varieties.
2: Yes. Yeah. I'm talking very sweet, comparing it to an apple. That's how wow. sweet there is. Really? Now, what I like about them a lot is they, they're great on grilling uh, mm-hmm. and, and thrown on, on the, uh, the summer sandwiches, whether it's a burger or whatever.
1: Yeah, whether you do them raw, just like you said, and put them on a sandwich or a burger, or you caramelize them. I mean, these are particularly the ones that are used for caramelized onions because the sugar content is so high, and the longer you saute them, the browner those sugars get, the more you caramelize those sugars and just get a deeply delicious sweet flavor.
2: There is one other onion I want to point out, especially out here in California, and that's known as the Stockton sweet now, it, relative to San Francisco is just east of here, and historically a huge agricultural area that of course is now got some urban pressure to it, but it is a red onion, generally very flat and large, and that is that classic red onion you put on hamburgers, you slice up, put it in salads. You know, I, I couldn't do an episode on onions without mentioning
0: the stockton. <laughs> of course. We were hoping you would.
1: And Earl, well, one more super, super quick question. Are these onions that we find in the same place that we find the cured yellow onions and and that the ones that have the papery skin that aren't really in a chilled area? Or are these going to be in a different section of your produce department? Yeah,
2: yeah very good question. You know, some people definitely refrigerate this product, and some don't. It really depends upon the particular produce manager and his department. Refrigeration is good if you keep them there. You don't want to move them and create condensation, which is then going to you know, uh, hasten the mold. What I mean by move them, I mean, some people store product in a walk-in, take it out, put it on display, put it back in the walk-in. So the same thing at home. You want to take it out of your refrigerator and put it out and take it back in. It'll it'll last in a cool place easily a week or two or maybe even more depending on how well they're cured because different growers are going to cure them at different rates, uh, meaning that they'll just, depending on how fast they want to bring them to market, they'll leave them out. Because generally what you do, you harvest them, you leave them in the field. In the summer, they cure them right in the field.
1: Well, I can't wait to go buy some. I love to cook with sweet onions. Thank you you so much.
2: yeah, the big thing is look for the very uncured skin that is okay.
1: It's key. That's the key to identifying them. Cool. Thank there you, you so defines much, much, Earl. freshness.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Onion, that's it for this week, and we'll have you back next week. <laughs> Talk to you later. In Bye, this amazing Earl. season. Thanks so much, Earl. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.
1: That has been such a packed hour.
0: Yes. Camping, glamping, car camping, backpacking, and onions. And onions. Bring onions with you if you can. and
1: I've heard about onions so sweet you can eat them as an apple and honestly I have never tried it but Earl makes it sound so exciting I think I'm going to have
0: to (laughs) nature is beckoning the great outdoors (laughs) are calling us they're calling wonderful
1: thanks for tuning in this week we'll see you again soon an organic conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network associate producer Kristen Ponger
0: This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash An Organic Conversation. Thank you for your contribution.
1: An organic conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business since 1988. The website is earlsorganic.com.
0: And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F R E Y W I N E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College,
1: focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is BowmanCollege.org. That's B A U M A N college.org.
0: If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com.
1: And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation.
0: We are your hosts, Helga Helbert
1: And Sitarani Palomar.
0: And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.
1: Bye.